From the Carrie and McGuire Center for Ethics and Public Responsibility at SMU, this is Sound Ethics, a podcast supporting scholars of ethics with particular regard for those at SMU, highlighting important questions of morality and philosophy. Today's program, Christian Ethics, the University and the Broader Society, is the fourth in the series on teaching ethics in higher education. And we are just beyond excited about the turnout that we've had and seeing everyone from so many different disciplines and universities joining us for these conversations. Today's discussion is going to be moderated again by our very own Dr. Rita Kirk. Dr. Rita Kirk is the William F. May Endowed Director of the McGuire Center for Ethics and Public Responsibility here at SMU. She is an Alt-Schuler Distinguished Professor in Corporate Communications and Public Affairs, author of numerous books herself. She has recently co-edited the book Ethics at the Heart of Higher Education. Our guest speaker, we are delighted and honored to have with us an acclaimed scholar and, as everyone knows, a legend in the academy, the Elizabeth Skurlock University Professor of Human Values, Dr. Charles Curran. Professor Curran has served as the president of three national professional societies, the American Theological Society, the Catholic Theological Society of America, and the Society of Christian Ethics. He was the first recipient of the John Courtney Murray Award for Distinguished Achievement in Theology given by the Catholic Theological Society of America. In 2003, the College Theological Society gave Professor Curran its Presidential Award for a Lifetime of Scholarly Achievements in Moral Theology. In 2010, he was elected to membership in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And in 2017, the Society of Christian Ethics gave him its Lifetime Achievement Award. Professor Curran has authored and edited more than 50 books in the area of moral theology and taught for over 20 years at the Catholic University of America and has also taught at Cornell, University of Southern California, and Auburn. And today, of course, we're proud to have him here at SMU. Professor Curran is talking with us about his recent article and chapter, Christian Ethics, the University, and the Broader Society. And I'll let Rita and Charlie take it away from here. Well, it's my pleasure to get to have this conversation with Charlie Curran. Those of us who have been lucky to know him over the years know that any time that you can just sit and have coffee or conversation with Charlie, you always learn something. And so I'm very excited about today's conversation. Charlie, I want to start by asking a couple of questions about the chapter that you wrote and um, kind of as a teaser, because I know a lot of people are going to want to read this chapter. It is very in-depth, and um, you've done such a marvelous job of laying out a very thorough defense of why we should teach religious ethics at the university level. So you begin your chapter by talking about two categories of ethics, philosophical and religious ethics. I think most of us are kind of familiar with what the philosophical ethics are, and many people wonder why you have to have both in a university. Why don't we choose between them? Well, I think the answer is, what's the meaning of a university? And it's universal. It's all-inclusive. And therefore, it should very uh, naturally deal with the question of religion, which is certainly a a very broad uh, but fascinating topic. And it, it comes in so many ways. In fact, it's quite interesting historically, I think. The, the, uh, in the last 30 years, the emphasis on learning more about Muslim and Islam 
brought people in to say, boy, we got to know something about their religion. I mean, that's such an important part of their life. And so oddly enough, I think that has given an impulse to say, we've got to know more about what our own religions say and what they might have to contribute to society itself. Oh, I think that's certainly true. You know, you argue as well that students of other faiths often take your course in religious ethics. Uh, what do you find their motivation for doing that is? And, and how does that enrich your course that you have uh, multi-faiths represented there? Well, I, I think many of them take it. Now, they're not the majority, I must say. But they take it, I think, because they see again that the Christian religion has had an important influence on society. So a couple of those people were in political science, and uh, they thought that, uh, you know, historically in this country, religion has played a very significant role. I mean, the role of Calvinism from the very beginning of this country, uh, that uh, there was no doubt that uh, the, from the beginning of the New, the New England uh, colony, that uh, the Christian religion had a great influence on the whole development of the American society. And so uh, I think it's a, a, a very important element and part of it. Now, but that's also why when religion is taught in the university setup, we're really not uh, anything about proselytizing. It's mm -hmm. simply explaining what is the role of religion. How does this religion understand itself? How does it see its role in society? What can it, what can it contribute to society? Because again, the Christian religion is always put together love of God and love of neighbor. And the question is then, how do you love neighbor in the contemporary situation of the 21st century in the midst of all the complexity? all the problems, all the uncertainties that exist in our world and in our society. So, I mean, the, you know, there's an innumerable number of issues that have to be raised, and religion has had something to say about those issues. Should we then have courses that talk about the ethics of other religions, say Hindi ethics and others, or um, should we hold those, are they so rich that we should treat them as separate courses as opposed to a general course in religious ethics? No, I think that would be a, a very appropriate thing to do. Uh, now, you know, there are, all, as you know, changing what a university does is not easy. <laughs> That's true. We've served yeah. on enough of those committees, haven't we? Yeah, yes, we have been on enough committees together over the years that uh, we know how hard it is. And obviously that would bring in, uh, you know, need for more faculty, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, certainly, and I mean, like, the, for example, the history department now has a number of people uh, teaching Muslim and Islam thought uh, that we also have in the religious studies department people teaching that. But it's not necessarily just the ethics, but at least it is a recognition that these uh, religions have something to say, not only in terms of themselves, but in terms of what their attitude is toward the society in which we live. Mm. So I want to go back in time a little bit because sometimes we forget our own history. Um, you mentioned in this chapter that SMU once had one of the most influential professors here, Albert Outler, 
who proposed what is now known as the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Those are big terms for a lot of us. So tell us a little bit about Outler and his influence as well as the Quadrilateral. Well, Outler was a very significant person here at SMU and in the Perkins School of Theology. For one thing, he was the first faculty member at SMU to become a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Wow. But when he came here he, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, uh, in the late 30s, he was a chaired professor at Yale. Mm -hmm. And for him to come to this uh, uh, small little place beyond the Mississippi River, uh, immediately put Perkins on the map. I mean, Outler himself was a, a, a Renaissance person. Mm -hmm. His main area was probably uh, the early church writings, uh, patristics it's called. But he, he was in many, many different areas. And he was a, uh, a stellar figure that really put SMU on the religion map by his coming here. And as they say, he wrote in, in many, many different areas. And uh, in fact, interestingly enough, he was the representative of the Methodist Church to the, uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Vatican II Council from 1962 to 1965. Wow. And uh, we have in the Bridwell Library here, we have about four or five different speeches he gave there on an informal basis. He, he thought that was one of the most important experiences of his life. And when he came back to Perkins, he actually had the students for the next three years as a textbook use the documents that Vatican II had come out with. So there was Mr. Ecumenism. He was a, a, a very significant figure. And in this area, uh, it, it wasn't Outler himself, but uh, a group of people studying Outler came up with what they called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Quadrilateral is just four sides. <laughs> so, uh, but it's the, it's the method that you use when you're doing Christian ethics. And the four parts of it are scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. And all those elements enter in. And uh, that the, the mainline Christian churches have always recognized that, yes, Scripture is very important, but the church, the church tradition over time can tell us things, and uh, especially human experience and human reason. So uh, th those are the, the four sources that uh, many of us in, in Christian ethics use. I personally don't come out of the Wesleyan tradition, but I use that because I think it's the, I, I think it's the most uh, helpful and the most uh, uh, truthful uh, way of going about the discipline. It's interesting to me how many really outstanding professors we have had in um, our theology school here, as well as in the, chair that you now hold and the McGuire Ethics Chair. Uh, what do you think it says about a university that the endowment of these distinguished chairs of ethics um, are given at a university-wide level as opposed to lodging them within a theology school or something like that? What is the impact that that has? Well, it, it, as you know, Rita, there are these two chairs that were established in the middle of the 1980s. 
And the idea was that they, the trustees at the time uh, wanted to bring ethics into or have it have place a, a, a significant role in the life of the university. They were fearful that if you put these chairs in any one department, they would be compartmentalized and sort of ghettoized and wouldn't have an effect. So as a result, then these two chairs were university professors who are not in any school or department, but report directly to the provost. And the idea, as I say, was to bring ethics into a major role in the university. And again, the first one who had the uh, uh, the McGuire chair was uh, our good mutual good friend, Bill May, after whom uh, you are now named as the William F. May uh, head of the McGuire Center. But I, I remember when I was uh, talking about coming here in 1990, the, uh, I said to the provost, I said, well, I, I do religious ethics, and are you sure that's what you want? Well, of course that's what we want. You know, we, we, we admit there's a role for something else, but in light of our university and what SMU has traditionally stood for, and in the light of the contributions that you have made to Christian ethics, we very much would like to have you here. And 30, 30 years later, I have very much appreciated having been here at SMU. I know we've appreciated having you. And in fact, you have been a champion of academic freedom um, and um, academic free thought, and particularly when it comes to um, the issues of religion. I mean, we continue to live in a world where it seems that people desire moral certitude, that they think they know the right answers to complex questions, or if they don't, they want to take a course like yours and hope that somehow or another that when they get in your course that that moral certitude will develop. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the struggles of, of both in your own life and in the way that you teach about looking at people who are looking for deeper, more specific answers about life. Well, I think it's important here, Rita, to uh, recognize that uh, there is uh, a great diversity depending on whether you stay on the more general level or you get down to specifics. And quite frankly, I, I think the danger at times is that people seek too much certitude. That's why the word you use is a good one, moral certitude. It's not absolute. Uh, it's the best we can come up with at the present time. Hmm? And uh, the problem is, if you look even at ethics, I think everybody would agree that, that good is to be done and evil is to be avoided. That's a, that's a no-brainer. But uh, then when you get into uh, the, the questions that we're facing today, I mean, climate control, immigration, uh, the, the whole future of the planet, uh, I mean, the... And the, the problems of the, the country at the present time, I mean, such as the Black Lives Matter movement, the whole uh, movement to have greater equality in this country. I mean, in fact, I often say in my classes that I think one of the great differences between the ethos in the United States and the Christian ethos is that the ethos in the United States tends to be much more individualistic, that individuals are in it only for themselves. 
whereas the, the whole Christian and most other religions, but I'm speaking now from the Christian perspective, as I mentioned in the beginning, that has always brought together love of God and love of neighbor, and that you, you have to have uh, both those aspects, but that we are not isolated individuals, that we are people who by our very being are called to live together with others. I mean, the, the, and quite frankly, there's no such thing as a self-made person. Mm-hmm. We all owe so much to so many people who have contributed to who we are today and what we try to do. And as a result, then, as I say, I think the danger of individualism in the United States comes across, especially in terms of the... Uh, the problem of equalities in this country and economic inequalities. I mean, the, the, the poverty that exists in this country, I just heard something coming in on the radio this morning about uh, the growth of poverty because of the pandemic situation. The, uh, it was said that, uh, I forget who did the study, but they asked people if, if they had a quick uh, expense of $250, would that cause them great difficulty or uh, uh, some difficulty? And almost 50% of Americans today said it would cause them difficulty and maybe even great difficulty. Now that certainly indicates that uh, the, the, the extent of even poverty, and these are, 50%. I mean, these are people who lost their jobs. These are people who worked their whole lives kind of thing. See, the individualism, if you work hard and you do everything, you're going to be all right. Well, the pandemic has reminded us that isn't the case. You know, this, you know, the poor people who worked in restaurants, for example, uh, they're closed. Uh, you know, many more wealthy people who are airline pilots, well, you know, they're out to say nothing of all the flight attendants kinds of thing. So even today, I think the poverty question has become even much broader and the lack of equality in the United States is uh, more glaring every day we live. And basically out of the Christian perspective, we say that, that uh, the human dignity is such that everybody should have a right to a minimally decent human existence. Now, you get into specifics, what is that, what isn't it? You, obviously, there's much debate back and forth. But, I mean, that certainly means, you know, food, clothing, shelter, education, etc. And it's uh, uh, that these are the issues that perhaps underneath so many of the other issues that we face today, this question of, uh, of a greater economic equality is uh, in many ways the primary issue I see in the United States today. You also speak in this chapter about some issues on more general principles, but one that I think we can all agree on, like respect for others and who is my neighbor and what is the meaning of love. Those are also questions that you address in this really interesting chapter that you write. In an age of COVID, it just seems so difficult for us to figure out how we build the kind of community and how we consider things like, who is my neighbor? Um, And how do we respect others when, in fact, many of us right now distrust other people more than ever? How do we, as um, 
as followers, perhaps, of the Christian faith, or even those who don't, but who are looking to these moral principles, how do how do we respond to those? Well, again, I, I think that, uh, that there is that, that danger, as I say, of individualism. And that's the thing I think we have to fight the most. Uh, that, for, for example, to, I mean, to solve all these problems, uh, that, that who's going to solve them all? Mm-hmm. And uh, that one way of looking at it is that uh, many people, now not everybody, because there are great diversity, as you pointed out, but in terms of, say, economic issues and the proper role of the government, what is the proper role of the government? And my perspective on that would be that, uh, that there's the danger on the one side of just individualism, there's the danger on the other side of collectivism. That individualism says there's no role for society or others. Collectivism says there's no role for the individual. Now, I think what you try to do is to hold on to both aspects. But that means the individual exists in society with societal bonds with other people, lives in the political order with other people. And uh, that long ago in philosophy, the great Greek philosopher Aristotle said that the human person by nature is political. That God made us to well, he didn't use the word God. We are made to, but I will. Uh, that uh, that we are made to w- come together, to work together in uh, in the political order, to work for the common good of society, which ultimately then redounds back to the good of individuals. And in this, then, there is that very disputed question, what is the proper role of government? But my way of looking at it is to say that that government has a very important role to play, but it's not the only one. And there's what is called the principle of subsidiarity. The principle of subsidiarity says you start with the individual, then you you see all the uh, the given things in society, like family, uh, neighborhood. Uh, then you see voluntary society. You know, we all belong to so many different voluntary societies that exist. And then only then do you bring in the political order with the uh, the local, the the state, and the national, and now the international kind of thing. And therefore, that you you try to bring about change starting from underneath, but saying you oh, there's something that are necessary that only the broader universal national society can bring about. And uh, that, uh, so that it's it's a both and rather than an either or solution. And I'm afraid with so many people today, it's either or, and, and, and that's bad. I mean, you know, I often say to my students in class, you know, I never heard anybody getting on an airplane to say, you know, get government off my back. I don't want them, you know, making sure those airlines are safe. But, I mean, let's face it, uh, it's a very significant role. The government's the only one that can play it. And it's a very significant role. And, I mean, you know, the unfortunate crashes we had a couple years ago are just a reminder that, that, uh, 
there is the need for that kind of oversight and that there has to be that kind of role of the government. And so uh, that, uh, again, it's, uh, you know, it's, there, there aren't absolute certitudes here, but there's a need for both a proper role of government, a proper role for all these intermediate groups in society, I mean, the press, the university, all of us have a role to play in working for a better society. But in the long run, there are some things that only the government can do. So if I understand you correctly, and going back to your writing here, you say that our first imperative is to live a moral life. Right. So talk about that. How do we, as individuals, construct a moral life? Well, again, I think uh, that, uh, first of all, what sources do you use? And as we mentioned before, the Wesleyan Quadrilateral says that from the Christian perspective, they use these four different sources to try to understand it. And then the moral life, certainly the Christian, and my own uh, approach would be what I call a relationality responsibility model, that uh, I see the world and the, the person, the, the person, in terms of the the different relationships to God, neighbor, world, and self. And it's within those multiple relationships that we have to work out what it means to be a moral society. And again, I think you need all of those. You see, uh, now, obviously, many people don't believe in God, and that's fine. Uh, But if you're looking at it from a Christian or religious perspective, then, then certainly the relationship to God is important. So uh, that people have to uh, recognize, you know, that in, in the Christian tradition, certainly the Christian scripture, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament are very significant. But again, there's great dispute about these in the Christian tradition. In fact, uh, I must say, the analogy came back to me in listening to some of the Supreme Court hearings the other day. I mean, do you interpret the Bible just in terms of what it meant at the time it was written? But, I mean, those times were very much uh, colored by the historical circumstances of the time. I mean, quite frankly, one of the greatest embarrassments, embarrassments for the Christian religion was the fact that it took us 19 centuries to condemn slavery. And it's a horrible thing. But in the New Testament, it says, no, be good, slaves be good to your masters, masters be good to your slaves. So that you, uh, so that there is this uh, hermeneutical problem, we say the problem of interpretation. And as they say, it's the same thing that they're going through in the Supreme Court hearings. How do you interpret a document, the Constitution, that was written 200 years ago or more? Uh, Our problem is we're dealing with documents that were written thousands, thousands, and thousands of years ago. (laughs) But but it's the same principle of interpretation. And uh, that I think most of us would say that there is this notion of historical development kind of thing, and we have to look at those in light of our own situation today. But you see, here again, there's that tension. You can't just accept everything that's going on today 
because I think there are a lot of things we have to criticize today, but there are other things we can learn today. I mean, we have learned a greater dignity of the human person. We've learned a greater respect for diversity of racial, ethnic uh, diversity, sexual diversity. All of these things we recognize today that really were not that recognized in biblical times. And therefore, as we interpret the Bible today, we have to bring these with us. Now, the danger is, though, that, uh, that uh, we're just going to say everything is happening in society at the present time is good and we ought to change the whole Bible or something. Mm-hmm. That's why I mentioned before, I think the one thing, the most important thing that the, the Bible and the Christian tradition can tell us about our life as Americans is the danger of individualism. We think only of ourselves. We don't think of the, uh, of the society. We don't think of the international. We don't think of the poor people in our society. We don't see them. And so we don't think about them. All we're thinking about is ourselves. And, and, and in this regard, I mean, that the, uh, the Christian understanding of creation said, God created the world to serve the needs of all humankind, that all people have a right to a minimally decent human existence. And that is a biblical norm that I think has valid all times and all places. How we work it out, that's another issue. But that's, I say, how you interpret the scripture is, and, and there's divisions within the Christian community on this. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it is that problem of how you deal with a document that was written many, many years ago, which you believe is a founding document, but how is it to be interpreted today? So I I love the fact that our first imperative then is to discover and live that moral life. And you then talk about um, religious ethics and philosophical ethics as being a second order approach. So Fill me in just a little bit about second-order approaches and how that differs from this first of, of living the moral life. Okay, good, good, good question. Because a lot of people say, oh, you teach ethic. Oh, do we need ethic? We got to have more. Oh, of course, they want you to teach what they think ethics is. Huh? Yes. So I, I think your question is a very good one. And it's uh, the way I phrase it with my students is that... Uh, the most important thing is living the moral life and that ethics takes a step backward to reflect systematically and critically on what this means. And to me, the best analogy for this is to see the role of the ethicist somewhat like the role of the psychiatrist. Now, the role of the psychiatrist is to help people to make sure that they can be emotionally well-behaved, mature human beings. Now, I asked the students this question. I said, now, I don't want to denigrate any profession, but do you think that psychiatrists themselves are the most emotionally well-balanced, mature individuals you ever met? And with a few laughs and things, they say, no. All right, because you see, what they do is, they, uh, they, they re, they're, one, they're second order. They move back from the order of living, the order of the living reality, to try to systematically 
thematically and critically study that. Mm. And so the same thing is true with ethicists. Ethicists are not the best decision makers in the world. I mean, because... They debate too much, right? <laughs> yeah, we, you and I know that. <laughs> that uh, but, I mean, you know, some of them are, are going to take so long they can't even cross the street kind of thing uh, but, uh, because they're constantly raising questions. But there is a role to play. And I think that role is to help us to think through these things. But the more important thing is always to do the right rather than just to think about it. So our role is probably a little less than some people want to give it, the role of the ethicist. But I think it's an important way, the same way as the psychiatrist's role is important, but everybody on their own tries to develop their their own psychic life, everybody on their own tries to develop their own moral life. But we can make some contributions to that by uh, stepping back from it, examining things, raising questions, etc. I know that at SMU, we spend um, a lot of time talking about how disciplines should work together, about the importance of understanding um, others' perspectives. And in and, and your chapter, you talk about that Christian social ethics require us to interact with other disciplines to figure out things like, well, what is, what is a good social, political, economic society? What does that look like? And so we ask students to weave what they've learned in other courses into those that we teach. And you've already talked about that a little bit, but can you talk about it from the other side? Why is it important that these disciplines also recognize these ethical principles that somehow guide their um, economic, political, and social views? Well, it, it seems to me that uh, the way I analyze it at times is there's the human perspective. But within the human perspective, there are all sorts of other perspectives. There's the sociological, the psychological, the eugenic, the hygienic, the economic, etc. And that these are all important aspects of the total human. But sometimes in the name of the human, you might have to say no to what a particular science wants to do. One obvious example of that is uh, uh, sociologists could find out a lot more information about people if they violated their privacy. (laughs) (laughs) uh, But we say, no, you can't do that. So in the name of the human, you have to put some restrictions on what a particular science can do at times. And and the best of the scientists, I think, admit that, that that they they have to bring in the total human perspective, which it seems to me is the moral perspective. And that it's that total human perspective that, and and nothing is perfect from every perspective. I mean, that, uh, that, uh, I mean, look at what we're going through now in the pandemic and the teaching. I mean, it's obvious that the, the, the better pedagogical thing is we have people in the same room talking with one another, sharing, uh, I mean, that, uh, the, the, you know, the Zoom that we're on now, it's, it, we know one another, we, but, but especially when you 
for example, with your students. If you've never seen them before the class, all you saw this semester was these faces there. And that isn't the best pedagogical system in the world, right? But in the light of the pandemic, it's what the human calls us to do at the present time. So consequently, uh, that, that nothing, as I say, is perfect in this world because you got to look at it from all these different perspectives. You know, I'm going to leave with this uh, little conversation that I hope we'll have over the next few minutes, which is what you do beyond what you do in the classroom. And certainly this book um, talks a lot about what happens within the classroom and our role with students. But you have as uh, one of your missions that the faculty still need to interact with one another. And in fact, you lead colloquia at least twice a year um, with faculty getting together and talking about the struggles that they have as they look at ethics in the law or philosophy or uh, medical um, science. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how important it is for the role of ethics within a university to also feed the curiosity and the struggle that faculty have. Well, I, I, that is one of, you say, that's one of the purposes of this ethics colloquy that's been going on campus now since before I got here in 19, you, know, you, you and I came the same year, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. <laughs> we show it too. No. <laughs> that, uh, that is, so it was going before that time. And I, I just sort of took it over, I don't know, 20 years ago or something. But what, what it is, you see, again, all of us deal with ethics in our own way. And we try to bring people together across the university uh, to, who deal with various aspects. So the, the legal aspect, the philosophical aspect, the, the religious aspect, and some other people who are just interested in the ethical dimension itself. And uh, that this is a way uh, of, uh, of, again, of bringing faculty together to, uh, to discuss these, to learn from one another, to learn the different approaches. What would the legal position say? What does the philosophical say? What does the Christian say? And I think this is a, you know, a, it, it's a small group, but I think it's a, it's something that we, we know or we, we go to voluntarily because we think it's good for us and good for the discipline. Now, actually, there was a, a, an earlier time at the university, uh, in fact, right after I first came, uh, that the uh, provost uh, had uh, faculty seminars with the, uh, the, the two university professors. Bill May and myself each did one of those, a faculty seminar with 10 different faculty members coming together to study to the, this whole issue of ethics and how it would affect people. And quite frankly, I was so glad of, to do that because it, it got me again to know, you know, faculty from all sorts of other disciplines on campus. And it was a marvelous experience for all of us. Now, unfortunately, you know, there's, you, uh, that takes a little money to do that, and uh, we haven't done it since. But it was a way early on, you know, 25 years ago, that they tried to say this was a way to try to bring the whole faculty into this discussion of ethics. 
Maybe we need that again, Charlie. That sounds like well, a, a, a great thing for us to pursue, and perhaps we will okay. put that on our next agenda. So be prepared what you volunteer for. <laughs> I'm on my way out. <laughs> oh, I doubt that. <laughs> Sound Ethics is a production of the Carrie M. McGuire Center for Ethics and Public Responsibility at Southern Methodist University. Thoughts, views, and opinions of Sound Ethics speakers do not necessarily represent the views of the McGuire Ethics Center or SMU. The McGuire Center supports student and faculty ethics-related education and activities, as well as outreach to community, private, and public institutions. Learn more by visiting us at smu.edu backslash ethics or finding us on social media at McGuire Ethics. <laughs> <laughs>